You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. Well, for the last time, for a while at least, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We've finally come to the end here. And um, if you haven't done so already, uh, we just read through verses 1 through 8. And... Um, If you have your Bible, or maybe on your phone even, you would see that uh, we didn't read verses 9 through 20. And in my Bible, it talks about how some earlier manuscripts don't have this. And so um, it's kind of a strange ending to the gospel. Ends in four verses, and then it has this kind of crazy ending that if you, if you read it, you know, some of it kind of sounds familiar. It sounds like what you'd read in the book of Acts. But then there's some other wild stuff like grabbing snakes and drinking poison, you know, and you're like, what is going on here? There is some wild stuff happening. And so it raises a question, or maybe it doesn't, but it, it did for me. It raises a question of how do we understand the scriptures even to come to us? And are they trustworthy? Like, can we believe these scriptures when you've got, you know, portions in here that are questionable and they say all kinds of things? And so just to begin here, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about how can we know that we can trust God's word? How can we know that what we have here in front of us is actually a trustworthy account Now, I'm I'm not going to be able to lay all the examples out for you and kind of lay out a perfect apologetic to prove to you that everything is right and true. But we should be able to go to the Word of God and see that it is actually a very trustworthy telling of what God has done, and it's recorded for us. The Bible says that it it calls itself God-breathed meaning that it is revelation from God himself, that God came to people in real time, real history, into real circumstances, and spoke to them, and through the events of their lives, they recorded scripture for us to be able to learn from and to be able to um, read back. And so this gospel that we've been looking at, Mark, is estimated to be recorded around like 30, 40 years after Jesus had lived all these events. Mark is recording Peter explaining all of these things. And so 30 years, maybe to like those who are really young, sounds like really long time. But those of us who have lived a while, or maybe if you've sat down at at the, the dinner table with your parents or with grandma and grandpa, like they, they easily tell stories from 20 30, 40 years ago with great detail. And sometimes they're even stories that are pretty useless, right? They're just like stories, okay? Don't ever say that to them when they're telling you those stories, okay? But they're just like random stories. This is the greatest story. So the details are clear in people's minds about what they had seen. And this is not a Google age where they searched all the details. They remembered things. And so these stories have been written down 
for us. And so these authors, again, inspired by God, wrote down either narratives or teachings or prophetic word, all kinds of different genres, but they wrote them down for us. And then those original letters or writings were passed on and copied over time by scribes and by different religious institutions. And that's basically how history has been recorded for us. And even much of Greek and Roman history was recorded by Christian scribes, people that were like professional in their work of writing and rewriting the works that God and history had given to us. Peter Williams, in his book, Can We Trust the Gospel, which I recommend, you know, if this kind of interests you, he says this, that the overwhelming majority of scribes perform their job conscientiously. So when we look back at history and see what the scribes did, we actually see that they were very faithful. They were meticulous. They were rigorous in their copying of the Word of God as it came down. So, as an example, in 1516, Erasmus produced the first complete Greek New Testament. First one to kind of compile all of it together. And he did it primarily from two sources that were from around 1200. Okay, so if you're into history, you're loving this. The rest of you are like, snooze fest, move on, you know. 1,200, so a few hundred years of difference. You would think that the difference from 1,200 all the way back to when they were first written, like you're talking 1,000 years or more, that there would be like a lot of mistakes or major changes that have happened. But from 1,500 to today, we've actually discovered hundreds of more copies and pieces and elements of the New Testament. And we can look back now and see that Erasmus's collection of the Greek New Testament is super accurate. And even now that we have manuscripts that go back to the second and third century, there's almost no major changes to those texts. There's some minor little things that have maybe changed a little bit, but not actually the meaning of the text. There are two places where there are some major changes that have happened. One of them is in John's Gospel, where there's 12 verses in chapters 7 and 8. You'll see a little note in your Bible about that. And the second one is Mark 16, where there's another note in your Bible that there's some questions around whether or not this is in the original text. And so Christianity doesn't actually hide the fact that there is some discrepancy there. That there is some like difference in, you know, some manuscripts having this text and others not having it. And so it just puts it in there. It says, hey, there's some manuscripts that are going way back that have it. But the, the most oldest ones that we have, they don't include it. And so we put a little note in there. And so for that reason, these scriptures have been kind of included. But most people believe they were not in the oldest manuscripts which is taking us closest to what Mark has recorded for us. So when we come to the scriptures, we should know that, man, there's a lot of debate out there about the Bible. And there's a lot of people that would love to erode our confidence in the Bible. Mostly it's because they really don't like the message that's in there. But there's also some really valid questions that people raise about it. But when we look at the historicity of it, and how it's been transmitted to us over time, it's actually 
one of the most trustworthy historical documents out there. Now, can we prove everything to someone? No. But is it trustworthy? Yes. And one of the reasons even to trust it is our text this morning. So, if you haven't turned in your Bible or in your phone to Mark 16, the text itself this morning is a sample of, you know, the realness of it. Because when you read this story, you see that, okay, if someone was just trying to create a myth or they were trying to create this great story, a narrative about this person named Jesus, they would not put all the flaws and the, you know, errors in there that these people, his followers, lived out. Because even in reading these verses here, his followers don't look that great, okay? The end of the story, verse 8 says that they were afraid. Those are like the last three words of the book. They were afraid. Not like, you know, shining examples of people who are following their new Savior. They were afraid. And so when we come to the text here this morning, we see that the, the truthfulness, the realness of the story comes to us. And that's because it really happened. These are the recordings of live testimony of witnesses to the reaction and the life lived of people who were following Jesus. So let's begin by looking verse by verse at this last passage, and let's start with verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 says this, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, that's Jesus, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. Here go these women. They have just seen Jesus, who they thought was problems. Now he's dead, hung on a cross. And they just go into autopilot. I don't know if it's shock or if it's just, you know, this is what we do. But they just, they get ready to go and anoint his body with spices and put, you know, perfumes into the tombs because they just, they don't know what else to do. They just do what they're supposed to do. And so they're on autopilot. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. I've mentioned it here a number of times. You'd think it's like my favorite movie or something, but it just always comes up with great examples. Fiddler on the Roof is a story of this Jewish community living in Russia, and at, at the time, they are kicked out of their village. They are told to leave everything, and it's like a day or two, I think, in the movie that they just have to pack up and go, which basically means don't pack anything up. You know, it's like pack a bag. So they pack a bag and they pack up maybe a wagon full of stuff. And then as they're about to go, the, the kind of the main family, Golda, who is the, the mother of the home, she says, okay, i got to do one more thing. i got to go sweep the house. So she goes back into the home and sweeps the house. And the husband and the kids are like, why are you sweeping the house? We're leaving. Like, we have nothing left here. Don't sweep the house, you know. But she is also on autopilot. She's just like, we're going on a trip. What do you do? You sweep the house. I don't know. I'm never coming back to this house, but that's just what we do. And that's what these women are facing here. Their Messiah is dead. What do we do? We go and we anoint the body. 
And we go put some perfumes into the tombs. And so as they're walking over, it says that they remember, oh yeah, there's like a big stone there. You know, that's really easy to roll into place because usually it's rolling down a little bit, rolling to cover up the, the grave. But now we've got to roll this out of the way because the idea is to get into the tomb and to bathe the body in perfume and put some bowls in there to kind of damp the smell of a decomposing body. And so they are confused again. And why is Mark telling us these details? Why is Mark getting us to think about such a simple thing of them wondering about who's going to move the stone away? The reason why Mark is doing that, and he's been doing it throughout the book, is because they did not have in their mind's eye this idea of their Messiah rising from the dead in the here and now. They weren't ready for that. They weren't prepared for that. So Mark had been introducing this idea over and over and over again of Jesus rising from the dead, and there's been constant confusion around this, right? We've talked about this a number of weeks. They just did it. 9 and 10, it says this, And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what, he had, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And then verse 10 says, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They're just confused by that. They're like, Jesus, what do you mean, rise from the dead? This is a confusing statement. In the Jewish mind, in the followers even of Jesus, as Jesus has been telling them in chapter 9, and he repeats it again in chapter 10, there's no space in their mind for Jesus rising from the dead in the now. Their mind is only like in the future there might be something happening. But Jesus is saying, here's what's going down. I'm going to suffer I'm going to die. They're going to put me in the ground, but I'm rising up. I am rising up from that. And they just had no place for it, which should be encouraging for us. Because there's very little space in our minds even for resurrection life. I mean, we have to remind ourselves regularly through the breaking of the bread, through the taking of the cup, that Jesus has died. But think about it resurrection, resurrection, someone dead, rising to life. Even for those of us who are Christians, got to say, man, that's a stretch, that God could do that. And your neighbors who don't know Jesus or people that you bump into on the streets who don't know Jesus, this is one of the questions they're like looking at you going like, you believe in that? That a person was dead and now they've risen to life. So this like lack of expectation, this lack of space in their hearts and minds for a resurrected Savior should comfort us. It puts us in, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one who struggles with this idea of resurrection. And that's why Mark is recording these details for us so that we will come together, to gather together to remind ourselves of resurrection power. Because what Jesus has done is not just risen so that someday we can be in heaven. That's probably how a lot of us got saved. You know, maybe we were told some sort of story or maybe we heard the story or someone talked about hell or something and we were like, I want to be in eternity with Jesus. That sounds good. I love the sound of that. Take me there. And so 
We've associated resurrection only with that idea, someday with Jesus. But the scriptures tell us that resurrection power has come now. Resurrection power has come here into our world. Jesus says that we are called to live what he says is an abundant life. A life here and now that is filled with his presence and his work around us. Eugene Peterson, who is a well-known pastor and who wrote the translation, The Message, which maybe you've read some parts of before, he tells a story of a woman in his church named Hilda who seemingly from the outside had it all together. He says she was good-looking, she was married, she had two children, she was successful, she looked like confident when she'd come in. And then there was this season of kind of no excitement for the Lord, just kind of coming maybe every once in a while. And then into her life came the challenge of her husband and his work and not really enjoying it or finding fulfillment in it. And in this really dark season where her father had cancer and he ended up losing his battle and died to to use language from the Psalms, she turned to Christ and in a new way just suddenly discovered through the scriptures, through reading it, through prayer, through worship on Sunday mornings, through God's people, like suddenly within her was a fire. And she was like, how did I miss this? That this is actually what God is doing, not to take away all the pain from my world, but in and through all the pain, he comes and and gives me life and energy. And Eugene Peterson says this, He's, he's coming from a, a pastor's perspective, but it's a word for all of us. He says this, So many eyes glazed by television, or I'll add smartphones. This was written in the 90s. Glazed by television and smartphones don't see the God stories being enacted right before them, sometimes in their own homes. Blinded to it. Blinded to the abundant life that's going on all around us. And Eugene is reminding us what the text is trying to get us to see is that resurrection life comes now. And we've been asking the question the whole time, do we have a category for it? The disciples and these women, they didn't have a category for it until it just confronted them. So what is the reality of this that we are to be confronted by? It's verse 6 of chapter 16. It says this, And he said to them, this is the angel, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So the angel says, listen, you've come looking for Jesus to anoint his body, but he's not here. He's risen. If you look at the text up in verse 15, verse 47, the last verse of 15, the women were there. It says they saw where he, his body was laid. So they were witnesses to Jesus' body being put into the tomb, covered up by a stone. And now they come back expecting it to be there, and the angel says, he's risen. He's gone. So all the promises, all the hopes that they had, 
are becoming true. The promises from the Old Testament, we've read from Psalm 22 over the last few weeks, and it has within it the picture of this crucifixion and his death, but it also has the picture of his hope. Listen to these verses, a number of verses from Psalm 22. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild ox. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow before him. For dominion belongs, and the Lord, he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast in worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot save themselves alive, they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. The promises from the Old Testament of this hope, someone who will come and do something that none of us can do, are being fulfilled in their midst. Now there is coming a day when its total fulfillment will come at the end of time, but resurrection power comes here in the narrative. And as Christians, this is what we hang on to. This is what we worship. It is Jesus alone. In 1 Corinthians, Paul gives a great explanation of what we are called to be about as Christians. And he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul says, here is the top of the list for Christians. This is what we gather around. It's not a, a liturgy. It's not an old building. It's not any kind of traditions. Those things are all wonderful and we love them all. But Paul says, this is of first importance. This is it. Baseline, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, then to all of the Apostles. So Paul says, this is top priority for Christians. Jesus is risen from the dead. And at the time of writing this, Paul says, listen, and if you're doubting this, which you should be doubting it, he says, go talk to these people. Go talk to witnesses who were there and saw Jesus risen from the dead. He says, don't just take my word for it. Trust the, the account of witnesses who have been there. And so for us as believers, we still continue to trust the account. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, saying this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So Paul says, if the resurrection, if this historical event never took place, if there's no resurrection from the faith, then none of us should be Christians. That's Paul's word of recommendation for us. If this is not true, if it's a lie, if it's just a myth that has been created, 
and we're here on a Sunday morning, then we should be the most pitied people on the planet. But Paul says that's not the case. Jesus is alive. And we have witnesses who saw him. And we now, as God's people, over the centuries, have experienced this new life. This resurrection life has been experienced in many of our own lives as we have lived the highs and lows. And so, the result then of the resurrection is this greatest news possible, which we are called to tell. Look at verse 7 and 8. But go, the angel says, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They, okay, they were supposed to go tell someone. But what does it say they did? They ran away afraid, and they didn't tell anyone. They kind of did the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do, Right? And I'll tell you, these last two verses are basically like the whole reason why we spent 45 weeks in Mark, okay? I'm just giving you a little insight. This is it. Because right in these two verses is encapsulated, I think, most of our lives in our existence. We have the greatest news out there. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Miraculous work. Our own lives changed as a result of it. And now we are called to go and tell people about it. And it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to go out and tell the good news. It's hard on multiple levels. It is first hard to even tell each other, right? So look at the text that they are called to go and tell his disciples and Peter. The angel actually specifies Peter's name. Go tell the disciples, remember from the story, all of them, gone. Gonzo, ran away. Peter is kind of there, but denies Jesus three times. And now the angel says, go tell them. The calling for us is that we must tell each other the gospel. We must do the hard work, actually, of telling one another what Jesus has done for us. Here's what we've discovered in just being a church for two and a half years now. This is easy. Coming together, sitting down, playing songs, singing, lighting an Advent candle. This we could do. We can do this. But this, telling each other the gospel truth, is really hard. Making disciples is really hard. You know, why is it hard? Like, this, it's the greatest news that is out there. But yet, we often, all of us, myself included, are bound up. Our heart is given to other things that begin to rise up as greater than the greatest news out there. And so, the things that we buy, the trips that are anticipated, the, the event that is going to be Instagram-worthy, whatever it is, it slowly seeps in and rises and becomes greater than anything else. And so the telling of truth then is sidelined. But the news that we have to tell each other is the greatest news out there, that we are 
forgiven and that God has made right what has been wrong. And so when the angel says, go tell the disciples and tell Peter, that's part of the news that they're supposed to be hearing about, that God has made right all things, whether the things that were done in, you know, a few hours in Peter's case or the things that took a lifetime. God has come and made things right. And so we are called to tell each other. But not only that, we are called to go tell the world, which is also difficult, isn't it? It's hard to tell this message to our neighbors, to our friends. It's just plain difficult. And sometimes that's because we, we are expecting uh, mockery to come. We're expecting persecutions to come, which Jesus promises that they will come when we stand up for Christ. So that's kind of scary. And then there's often like really hard but good questions that sometimes we do have the answers for and sometimes we don't. And so we're fearful and so we recoil. And so it's really hard to do this go and tell message. It's hard. It's hard, but it's not impossible. Because as God's people, we've seen that maybe you've done it yourself, or maybe you just know from stories around church and throughout history that it's hard, but it's not impossible. The message has gone out. And in Rodney Stark's book, he, he talks about the rise of early Christianity. He's a lecturer and a teacher, and so he looks at it from a historical standpoint. And so he says his approximation from around A.D. 40, he estimates that there's around 1,000 Christians at that time. 1,000 people who are following the way of Jesus in A.D. 40. And by about 350 A.D., so 300 years later, it's over 33 million believers, which is estimated to be over 55% of the Roman world. Over half the Roman world committed to Christ and the way of Christ and discipleship to Jesus. God's word goes out. The seed that is planted through you and through me is growing over time. The power of the resurrection is not just in how God brings healing into our own lives, but how those seeds, the story of the good news, grows in people's lives, in neighborhoods, and in communities. What is the difference? Rodney Stark wouldn't say this, although he records some of these things, but there's two things I just want to note in closing here, and it's this. First, from the account in Acts, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So one of the gifts of resurrection power is that we are given the Holy Spirit. He comes into our lives. And so as we share the testimony of the faith that we have in Jesus, the trust that we have, other people experience the presence of God. Other people experience God's work in their lives through us. So the Spirit of God residing in us works through others around us. But secondly, the early church was active in its love for each other, love for brother and sister, and love for their neighbor in a self-sacrificial way. And Rodney Stark says that is the, the greatest avenue for the movement of God around the world. He's thinking specifically in the Roman world. 
And so we've seen this even in our own lifetime, how the movement of God has gone out through neighborhoods, through countries, through nations. And it's the word of God lived out in people's hearts through the Holy Spirit, evidencing love to each other and love to neighbor. N.T. Wright puts it this way when summarizing the Gospels, and this, his book is specifically about Mark. He says, The Gospels are not merely antiquarian documents telling a strange story about a powerful but now long-gone moment of history. They are the moment of sunrise on a new morning, casting a strange glory over the landscape and inviting all readers to wake up, to rub the sleep from their eyes, and to come out and enjoy the fully dawned day and give themselves to its tasks. This is our call, church, to wake up. Maybe this is even the morning. The little tap on the shoulder, or maybe you like need a real shake, and you lift your head, and you rub your eyes, and you see this is actually the reality, that Jesus is here. He's come. He has brought resurrection power. In John 11, there's a story of Jesus who comes to the death of Lazarus. You'll be familiar with that story if you're a Christian. Lazarus has died, and Jesus comes to see his friend and to see those who are mourning. And Martha comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you had been here, you could have done something. She just goes straight up to him, right? Straight up to his face and says, Jesus, the problems in my life, you could have been here and you could have done something to solve that problem. But she says, I still trust that you can do something. And so Jesus says to Martha, he says, Martha, don't you realize that at the end of time, Lazarus is going to rise from the dead? And she's like, yeah, I get that. I've got the Jewish mindset at the end of time, when it all kind of rolls up, when history is rolled up like a scroll, he will rise from the dead. But Jesus, problem here today, now, you're not in it. When Jesus says to Martha, he says, Martha, don't you realize I am the resurrection? I am the life. And he asks her in that moment, he says, Martha, do you believe in me? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe in you. This morning, wherever you're at, in your knowledge or lack of knowledge of the resurrected Jesus, will that question land in your own heart and mind? Jesus, the resurrection and the life, do you believe in him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for this recording of the acts of Jesus. And we thank you that it clarifies for us that you can and you choose to work through weak and broken vessels. And Lord, we just want to say today that we trust in you, our Savior. And uh, Lord, for anyone who is wondering or the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes this morning and they've rubbed the sleep from their eyes, Lord, I pray that they would see the beauty of Jesus, the resurrected and glorious life that we have. In his name we pray. Amen.